0: This is a very difficult passage of scripture. As Mark recalls, Jesus went away to Tyre. This was a region far distant from the places in which Jesus normally traveled. It was an area called Phoenicia. In the Roman province of Syria, if you can picture the The map of the Holy Land, that Middle Eastern region, Uh, you will remember that Judea was the region just around Jerusalem, and above that was Samaria, the land into which no person would intentionally travel. Of course, Jesus traveled there and encountered persons purposefully. And then above Samaria, there was the area of Galilee, which was adjacent to the sea that carries that same name. And then above Galilee, there was the area that was called Phoenicia. And it was in a larger region called Syria, which was a part of a Roman province. Surely Jesus was mentally and physically fatigued. He wanted to get away. No different than at the end of the day when he would seek out a place of solace in order to be in prayer or get up early in the morning in order to have time by himself in order to focus. He wanted time away, it appeared. He went away, as Mark said. And yet there was no anonymity. In fact, his renown preceded him perhaps before he even arrived in Phoenicia. He got on Airbnb and he made a reservation (laughs) there, and yet when he arrived, word had gotten out that he was in town. There was no place for him to escape, it seemed, or was that what he was trying to do? There was a woman, particularly, that came to him in this remembering a Gentile, a Syrophoenician woman. She had been born and bred in that region. She knew it well. She knew her place in the world. She was disturbed. What mother would not come and ask if there was an opportunity that their child might be healed? And so she comes to Jesus. And this is particularly where the story begins to get dicey because she was this person who knew by virtue of her gender, by virtue of her race, by virtue of her religion, by virtue of her class, by virtue of her nationality, that chances were that Jesus, this rabbi, this person who had special gifts, would have little to do with her. This was a part of the equation, and yet, She comes still begging Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. She had no other definition for what was problematic in her daughter's life. Begging, begging him. She falls at his feet and asks him to cast the demon out of her daughter And Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Could this be a racial slur or a faux pas, that Jesus would say something so politically incorrect I wouldn't say that to a soul? I mean, would you? I mean, it is inconceivable that Jesus would say something like this that seems to put the woman in her place and distance him from her. I struggle with this. I find myself wanting to make excuses for Jesus. Oh, Jesus didn't really mean it, you know, of course. You know, that this was just, he was having a bad day. He was having a bad day. No, wait, that doesn't work, you know. In fact, there are several ways in which I've tried to make this work in my mind. And there are many plausible circumstances that we could lend our thinking to. First, some have suggested that Rabbi Jesus, we'll call him that, Rabbi Jesus was using this as a teaching moment for the woman, that Jesus knew all the while what he was saying, that there was no intent to put her down, but to get a response out of her. That's one way of thinking about it, I suppose. It's not the way that I want to think about it particularly, but that is one way in which to think about this story that Jesus is the rabbi, the all-knowing rabbi that in some way wants to get a response, the right response out of the woman, but the woman's already prostrated herself before him. She is absolutely divest of anything of pride. And there she is asking humbly before him, what else could she do? It may be that you will remember me preaching a sermon three years ago. Oh, come on. You don't remember what I preached last week. (laughs) um, But I did. I preached a sermon three years ago on this very scripture. And in that scripture, what I suggested seemed very plausible. My sermons always seem very plausible to me, you know. But in that in that sermon what I suggested was that this was the winking Jesus, that Jesus knew what was going on, but that the woman also knew what was going on. And so it was sort of like this insiders joke that Jesus knew what he was saying and that he was speaking it tongue-in-cheek, and she knew that he was speaking it tongue-in-cheek. She was not the one that was being taught. The disciples were the ones that were being taught because they had to rise to the occasion to understand what Jesus was saying to them. I'm not as comfortable in this preaching today with that idea, you know, preachers are learning all the time. I hope you know that. They want to get it right. We seek to get it right. And I'm not here to tell you that this is my final word on the subject, but it is where I am and my heart is there today. There is a way in which some people suggest that this was a learning Jesus, a Jesus that was still in the process of finding what it meant to be Messiah. I'm uncomfortable with that. I'm uncomfortable with that because I do not think it gives credit to the fact that he had been pushed out of the nest by his mother who said to him with no uncertainty, do what he says as he was about to turn the water into wine at the wedding, you remember. And then when he was baptized, when he was baptized in the Jordan by John the baptizer and there was this voice from heaven, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Do we enter into this part of Jesus's mission and his ministry, thinking that he was not fully self-aware of who he was and what he was about and that he was the very essence of God's love expressed in the world. I think we venture into very dangerous territory if we think of this as a learning Jesus, even though there are some beautiful thoughts that come to his learning and our learning and his humanity, which is so akin to our humanity. I want to suggest to you that this is the tired Jesus. It is not the rabbi Jesus, not the winking Jesus, not the learning Jesus. This is just the tired Jesus who is reading the signs that are around him and simply repeating verbatim what others knew in their minds were, was the case for that culture. Some of you know that Statesboro's history is no different than many other a town in the South that years ago had its own signs. Those of you who are older will remember better than the young. Those who sit here in this place who are just a few years old will not remember that there were signs that were above the restroom doors in public places in town that simply read two words, whites only. I'm just curious if anybody here remembers a sign like that. You may have seen pictures of signs like that or you may have seen them yourself. What a horrific way to damage a people that were trying to to find a place outside of the prejudice and the, and the uh, oppression that can become a part of a culture. As well, there were signs that were above water fountains that designated spots where whites were to drink and where by the definition that was on the sign coloreds were to drink. This was a nation in search of itself at that time. It didn't know that it was in search of itself. That's why the signs were there. When Jesus moves into this culture, he sees the signs better than anybody else does. He knows what's in Phoenicia. He knows how the culture works. And we know how Jesus works too, don't we? I mean, even when the signs were up here in our community, we were still singing that song, Jesus Loves the Little Children. I mean, all the children of the world. What's come next on that? Yeah. How do we get away with that, with those signs being up? How do we get away with that? Jesus... Addresses the situation into which he comes by seeing the signs. This tired Jesus, so weary, seeking a place of rest, begins to speak to the woman who comes begging. He's just reading the signs. Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. It's not so much something that Jesus is saying to her. He's just reading the culture out. And she already knows what the culture is. She knows her place. She knows her situation. Crumb's. Jesus knows about crumbs better than you and I do. Jesus had just fed 5,000 people and he had sent out the baskets to gather up. They had 12 baskets overflowing with crumbs. He was about to feed 4,000 with the same scenario. What a sufficiency there was. Just recently, our house was invaded with our daughters and their children, and it was such a wonderful delight. We celebrated over Labor Day weekend with them. We were exhausted when they left, but we never stopped smiling even to this point. Our dog even looked forward to it. (laughs) Tootie is about six or eight inches high and about this long. She's a little dachshund, and she looks forward to the appearance of our grandchildren, for when our grandchildren are sitting at the table, they cast crumbs everywhere and spaghetti and eggs, and it is a delightful feast for that little Vacuum cleaner on the floor. (laughs) Nary a crumb gets by tootie. This woman was familiar with her place in society. There was a caste system, as there is in so many cultures, keeping people in their place. And she knew her place. She knew that she didn't have any right to be asking but that's not what this was about. This was about a mother's love. She didn't have to have it all. All she wanted was a crumb. All she wanted was a crumb. She could make that work. If Jesus could just give her a crumb, just some hope here, just a crumb. And oh, Jesus was so willing. When she said, sir, even the dogs under the table Eat the children's crumbs. He said to her, for saying that, you may go, the demon has left your daughter. Her perseverance, her courage, her breaking through the barriers that culture was setting up for her, Jesus admired that. And he wanted her to know that his heart was where her heart was. When we were in Warner Robins and I was the pastor there of Trinity United Methodist Church, I would go frequently over to a nursing home to just give a devotional. And while I was there one day, I had noticed this before but had not really been aware of the why, I noticed that there was an elderly woman. She was in her 80s. I don't know how old she was, but she was in her 80s. And she was spending a lot of time, particularly uh, taking care of and sitting near a younger man, probably half her age, who was in a wheelchair. This lady was getting around with her walker, you know. And then this man that was receiving the attention from her, I I don't know why he was there. I I mean, I don't know what had caused him to be there. I think that it must have been a massive stroke because there was no communication from him. He would lean over in his chair and he would drool sitting there. He would have to hold himself almost to be there, although there was really no, no way of communicating with him. But I can remember on the day that I was there, that she said, I want to introduce you to somebody. And she took me over to him, and she put her hands on his shoulders, and she said to me, she said, he's like a son to me. Now, she must have seen the startled look on my face. I know that I would have noticed it. Uh, The thing that was so interesting was that she was as white as that piece of paper, And he was as black as that microphone right in front of me. You talk about breaking through barriers. I was astounded that this southern genteel woman was saying what she was saying. Why she had adopted him as a part of her family. How does that happen? Only Jesus knows. And so what do you do? I mean, that's the real question is, what do you do with a passage like this? I mean, what do you do? I mean, what are you to do with a passage that comes with such force and yet is so mysterious even now? Some of you will remember perhaps that years and years ago, that a part of the Methodist communion liturgy had within it the words, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Do any of you remember that? It is just absolutely overpowering to me. In fact, I think it a grave loss that we don't have that in there now because it means so much for us to be the ones that would be saying that we were gathering up the crumbs under the table. So who does that make us? It makes us Syrophoenicians. It makes us Canaanites. It makes us Gentiles because it's running heavy in our veins. You and I should know ourselves and the generations of outsiders that represent who we are. And you and I, you and I, should be the very ones who are positioning the church to welcome those who feel like they are outsiders right now. Oh, there's a new way to do it in every age that comes around. And the church is struggling with it, struggling with it, I tell you. You and I are called to welcome those that Christ would welcome. And so here's your homework. Here's your homework. To ask yourself, do you see outsiders? I didn't read this next passage of scripture here. This next passage has Jesus curing a deaf man. You remember how he uses his saliva and touches The man's mouth, his ears, and he is remarkably healed. Do you know that that occurred in Sidon? Tyre and Sidon are both in this area of Syrophoenicia. It says here in Mark's words, then he returned, talking about Jesus, Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went by way of Sidon towards the Sea of Galilee. Now, you know what that's like saying? With our geography, either Mark did not know his geography or he knew Jesus really well. Because that would be like saying, if you're in Statesboro, I'm gonna go to Brunswick by way of Atlanta. (laughs) Because Sidon was directly north Of Tyre. It was in no way in the direction of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was going there as he always goes to find the outsiders, to include the outsiders. And so I ask you again do you see the outsiders? I want you to be on the lookout. If you go to Walmart, if you dare to go to Walmart, look for the outsiders, those people that you don't consider to be like yourself, perhaps. If you go to the grocery store, be on the lookout for the outsiders. If you go to a restaurant, hey, you're going to go to a restaurant in just a little bit, come on. Look for the outsiders. If you have time to sit on the bench down at Courthouse Square, be on the lookout for outsiders. If you're at the farmer's market walking around, be on the lookout for outsiders. And ask yourself, would they be welcome here? Would they be welcome here? You and I love to sing about the welcoming nature of Christ. I hope and pray that we will live out the ways in which he opened his life, his heart, to welcome outsiders.